Well, it's wonderful to be with you this morning. I love this time of year. Uh, it's a special time of year. We are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. I would encourage you to turn there, 1 Peter chapter 2. And as you do, I would remind you that we have uh, some special services coming up. Christmas Eve, we'll have two services, one at 5 o'clock, one at 6.30. And Christmas Day falls on a Sunday morning this year. So we will just have one Sunday morning service at 11 o'clock. It'll be a simple service, but I encourage you uh, to come out to remember uh, the birth of Christ on Christmas morning morning. But we're in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 8. I would ask you to stand with me to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. Verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right, so this morning our passage begins with the phrase, so put away. So relates what is happening here in chapter 2 to what we read in chapter 1. So, or because of, or in light of what we read in chapter 1 in the call and mandate to holiness and obedience, or so, or because of, or in light of the new birth that we have in Christ that was spoken to us in chapter 1, because of all these things, we are to put away certain other things. Putting away old things and putting on new things is a constant theme in the New Testament. And I want to read a couple of passages for us from the writings of Paul, because Paul is very clear about these things, just as Peter is. If we turn to Colossians chapter 3, we have a very powerful passage related to the specific thing, and Paul uses a little bit different wording that makes it even more forceful. Colossians chapter 3 Verses 5 through 10 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Peter talks about putting off, and Paul uses the same language of putting off, but Paul presses it even further here in Colossians, calling for us to put to death 
these things, which goes further than just putting off. It's an active struggle against something, and it is trying not to only suppress it or put it to side, but to destroy something that is coming against us in our lives. For we all know that the Christian life is not a neutral life. It's not a life that we coast through. If we are not seeking after Christ, the flesh or the old part of us will rise up and it will begin to take back over aspects of our life. And so the Christian life in sanctification is always an active struggle of putting off, putting to death old ways, seeking to have them ended in our lives. And so what we have is we have both a subtraction and an addition, putting off the old self, putting on the new self, getting rid of or putting to death old ways and putting on new ways. And if we don't see both of these things, and if we don't practice both of these things in our Christianity, something will be missing. Because many people see things as one or the other. They see the Christian life as either only a subtraction of things. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. Cut this out, cut this out, cut that out. And that's what they see the Christian life as. And they are not putting on the new and beautiful things of the Christian life, which make the Christian life so lovely and so wonderful. But some people see the Christian life only as addition, only as adding the things of Christ. I have all these sinful things over here, but if I put on some new habits, if I pray a little bit more, if I come to church more often, I add these things without putting aside the sinful things that I know are unrighteous in my life, you also have missed what is happening in the Christian life. The Christian life is both putting to death and putting away old sinful habits that used to characterize our life and taking up the new ways of Christ and speaking, acting, thinking, living in a different way. And as we'll see here in a moment in first in second Peter, I'm sorry, first Peter chapter two, this is a progressive thing. It doesn't happen all at once. In another passage from Romans, Romans chapter 6, verse 8 through 11, I'll read you uh, here. It has something else about this that's very important. Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 11 says this. Now, if you have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives to God, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus." So the passage talks about Jesus being raised from the dead and that we will share in that resurrection life. And verse 11 is where I want to focus our attention here. So you also must consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourself. This is a way of thinking, the way that our actions uh, are and the way that we think about ourselves as Christians that we ought to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. So what we are doing in putting off old things and putting on new things is understanding and standing upon the promises of Christ Jesus that we are in fact joined with Christ Jesus in his resurrection life. 
And when we feel overwhelmed by the struggle of sin and the difficulties of this life, we are to consider the promises of Christ Jesus and to consider the realities of his resurrection and understand who we are and where we are. It's like preaching to yourself by reminding yourself of the truth of scriptures and reminding yourselves of who Christ Jesus is and who we are in Christ when we have come to salvation. And consider ourselves dead to these things. Put them away. Put them to death in our life so that we might make progress in our Christianity. And so this is an expanded understanding of what Peter is saying in chapter 2. So put away, he says. What does he say to put away? He gives us five things in this passage that we ought to specifically put away from our lives as Christians. All malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So let's look at these things. What are these things that are to be put to death in our life that we are to consider ourselves dead to? The first is malice. The verb form of malice is to be malicious. What is a malicious person? Who is a person that does something with malice? A malicious person is a person who desires to injure and harm other people. A malicious person is one who has a purposeful desire to wound or hurt other people. Whether it be verbally, emotionally, physically, you are striving and intentionally doing something to hurt other people around you. We all know malicious people, people that are eat up with anger towards others and are trying to wound other people with their words. It ought not be this way as Christians. As Christians, we should put away all malice, all things that rise up in our hearts where we think, man, if I could say that to that person, it would, I know it would hurt them. And I want to use my words to hurt them. It ought not be that way for us as Christians. We should put all of these things away from us and have them replaced by the love and the kindness and the peace of Christ Jesus. Secondly, we are to put away all deceit. Deceit is lying to harm others by falsehood. It is to be a deceiver. And I would remind you this morning that Satan in the scriptures is presented to us as a deceiver and the father of all lies. And if we are to be anything as Christians, it is to be those who speak the truth, not those that go about deceiving those that are around us. And when we know that we are using our words or the actions of our life to deceive those around us, to hurt them or better ourselves, it ought not be this way. As Christians, we must put away from ourselves all deception, seeking to be and praying and asking God to help us to be those that tell the truth, even when it is very difficult. Third, we are to put away all hypocrisy from our lives. Hypocrisy is an outward show of righteousness, but inwardly we are evil and unbelieving. So outwardly, we look very righteous in the words and the actions that we say, but at home or in our heart or in our mind, we are not the way that we are presenting ourselves. We are presenting a false front. 
In the scriptures, the Pharisees are the ultimate in hypocrisy in the Gospels. They, they wear religious robes, they speak religious talk, they pray religious prayers, but Jesus is constantly getting on them, saying that inside they're like whitewashed tombs. There's death inside of them. Inside of their hearts, they do not believe in Christ. Inside their heart is envy and jealousy, and as we see at the end of the life of Christ, even murder. And so they are hypocrites because they present themselves as one thing, but they are not that in their heart. So we are to put away those things that we might be authentic, true and true, all the way through the same. That what we present to people in the world is the same way that we are in our own heart and the same way that we are in our homes and that we are in private. That we are not hypocrites. Fourth, that we are to put away all envy. Envy is wanting what other people have. There's a difference between envy and seeking to better yourself. Envy is the opposite of thankfulness or contentment. Envy is very similar to covetousness or jealousy. It's looking at other people and wanting what they have for yourself. And I would argue this morning that it's impossible to be an envious and a jealous and a covetous person and also to be thankful and content. Thankfulness and contentment we are called to as Christians. We're commanded to be thankful for the situation that God has put us in. And where you are, you're called to be content with what God has provided for you. It's part of believing in the good providence of God, that God has put you in a place that is good. And God progresses all of our lives in certain ways that are different in each person's life. But along the way, we must not be eat up with envy and covetousness and jealousy. But let me remind you that we live in a world that is full of professional marketing. And the world does everything that it can to stir up discontent in your life and to stir up covetousness and to pitch you against your neighbor that you might strive against them and not be thankful, but to spend and buy more and more and more, thinking that you will find contentment there, but you will not. So all envy is to be put away from us. And fifthly, all slander. What is slander? Slander is speech that is intended to harm the reputation of another person. Very similar to gossip, that we're speaking against a person in order to harm their reputation. We all know what this is like. We're all tempted in this way in certain times. And when you feel that temptation rising in you to speak against someone that you know what you're doing is slandering them. Your words are not helpful in any way. Your words are not accomplishing any good end. You are instead trying to undermine the reputation of another person. These things are to be put away from us. May God give us self-control in our words. Some of the hardest things to control, as James talks about the tongue, how hard it is to tame the tongue. But may God give us self-control over our mouth that we speak well of others and we only speak poorly of others when we absolutely have to for some good and righteous end. And so put away all slander, all envy, all hypocrisy, all deceit, all maliciousness, we should confess these things as sin. We should forsake these things. We should try to reconcile with others where we have wronged them in these ways. 
And I would encourage you this morning that we have a time coming up. In just a few moments here, Shane is going to lead us in the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a purposeful, intentional time that we regularly renew our hearts in these ways. And that if we have sinned in these ways and we have broken fellowship with others, that we ought to confess our sins and have a clean conscience before the Lord. It is a beautiful and perfect, and it is an ordained time to get our hearts right before the Lord. When we move on, verse 2 speaks about uh, us like newborn infants, longing for pure spiritual milk that we might grow up in our salvation. So we're putting off and we're putting on. We're doing away with sinful old things and we're striving towards spiritual growth. This whole illustration or this picture is as if we were like an infant. And an infant that is hungry cries out and longs for the satisfaction of pure milk or food or nourishment that that child might grow. Every newly born infant, we're worried if they don't eat, because if they don't eat, they're going to lose weight and things aren't going to go well. And so we want to see them grow. We want to feed them well and have them be strong and healthy. And so it is with us as newborns or children in Christ that we ought to call out to the Lord, that we ought to seek earnestly spiritual food, that we would be strong in our Christianity and in our faith, that we would grow Often we speak of salvation not as a static thing, not as something that happened to you in the past that you hang the picture on the wall and that's something that I did a long time ago. But our salvation is something that is constantly growing in us. We are constantly becoming more like Christ in the ways of our life. And these things come through seeking after having a heart that longs for the things of the Lord. And dear people, I would ask you, where are you with these things? Have you heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sins in his own body on the cross. Have you turned away from your sins? Have you repented of them and believed in the salvation of Jesus Christ? This is the beginning of putting off old things and putting on new things. When we are justified or declared not guilty in Christ Jesus and we begin this beautiful path of walking with Christ. As a result of this new birth, as a result of coming to salvation and putting your trust and your faith in Christ Jesus, are you actively putting off old ways in your life? Is this something that is a part of your thinking every day? Are you taking up the new ways of Christ Jesus? Are you walking in what is often called the means of grace? Means of grace means the way in which God ministers his grace to our hearts as Christians. God ministers his grace to our hearts through the scriptures through prayer, through the community of church involvement, through the Lord's Supper, through baptism. All of these ways are ways in which we draw closer to the Lord. When we refuse to obey the Lord in baptism, it's a willful step of disobedience which hinders our fellowship with the Lord. When we choose not to partake of the Lord's Supper or ignore it or treat it as unimportant, something is lost in our life as we ignore this thing which we are commanded by the Lord to do. 
When church and being involved with other believers is something that is secondary or tertiary in our lives and doesn't really matter to us, we get to it when we can. We are not partaking, we're not taking up this means by which God ministers to our hearts. When we neglect prayer and reading of the word each day, we are neglecting an opportunity to draw near to the Lord. But when we take all these things seriously and strive to press into these means of grace, the way in which the Lord God ministers his grace and purposes to our hearts, we will see these old things pass away and new things grow up in our heart. And we ought to be seeking after them like a hungry child, a passion, a hunger that you might long for these good things and find your soul satisfied in Jesus. And this is where we go in verse 3. Those that are satisfied in Christ, those that have come to know him as Savior, those who are near to his grace, what do they find? They find that they have tasted that the Lord is good. I would argue this morning that every person who is truly in Christ, every person who is not a hypocrite, every person who has authentically put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus has found him and tasted that he is good, that they have each and every one had some real and personal experience of the mercy, the love, the provision, the kindness, the hope, the peace of Christ. And the longer that you walk with Christ Jesus, the more examples that you will have of every one of those things. I know that this is true in my life, and I know that it's true in the life of every Christian that I have known, that they can tell you that they have Tasted and seen that the Lord is good, agreeing with the words of the psalmist in Psalm 34. There's actually a person in our church that has a business that's named after that. Uh, Taste and see uh, that the Lord is good. That's a beautiful thing. And so we move on to verse 4. Verse 4 is a little bit of a transition. He goes into speaking about Jesus Christ as a living stone. And quotes three different verses from the Old Testament about Christ Jesus as this living cornerstone. That Jesus Christ is he who is chosen and precious by God and yet rejected and despised by this world. And so in your Bible there, if you have, uh, most scriptures will have an inset for these three different quotations, which is a, a way of indicating that they are from the Old Testament. The first in verse 6 is from Isaiah 28, 16. And it speaks of Jesus as the cornerstone, as the first foundation stone upon which the rest is laid. And it encourages our belief. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is all the way from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Uh, the prophet Isaiah speaks about the coming Messiah or the promised Jesus more than any of the other Old Testament prophets. I understand that the book of Isaiah can be difficult to, to read and to understand, uh, but I encourage you to pick up a copy of Andrew Davis's uh, commentary on Isaiah. We have a copy in the library. It's an incredible devotional commentary. It's something you can actually work your way through the whole book of Isaiah as a devotional, reading uh, portions of the commentary, portions of the scripture. And if you have never done that in your life, I encourage you to do it. It will, it will radically, it's just a beautiful book that if you have misunderstood or have never opened, I encourage you to do so. It speaks so much of Jesus. The second quotation here in verse 7 is from Psalm 118, 22. 
which speaks of the coming rejection of the Messiah. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So he who was rejected by the masses, by the unbelieving world, has in fact become the first foundation stone upon which the rest will be laid. And Jesus himself quoted this directly in Luke chapter 20, verse 17 and 18. He tells a parable, uh, a parable about the people of Israel rejecting the coming Messiah and that when the coming Messiah comes to them, they will in fact kill him and try to take what is his for themselves. And when the people uh, are angry with him telling this parable because they realize that he is speaking against them, he is condemning them with his words, he looks directly at them, Luke says, and claims this status for himself. That he is in fact the cornerstone. He is the foundation stone of the church. And those who are struggling against him struggle against the kingdom of God itself. We spoke to you, I spoke to you sometime about this, uh, sometime back when we were looking at Daniel. And I would remind you of that. Daniel chapter 2, especially Daniel 2, 44, is directly related to this. The coming of Christ Jesus as this great foundation stone, which will destroy all other kingdoms until the kingdom of God expands and reigns forever. And so Jesus is the beginning of this, the inauguration of the coming of the kingdom of God. But this coming will be a stumbling stone. The third quotation from Isaiah chapter 8 verse 4. That the ministry of Jesus will offend and it will cause people to stumble and to struggle. And it still does today. So many people find the message of Jesus Christ to be an offensive message. A message that they stumble over. A message that they want to cut into pieces and only take certain things out because they will not submit themselves to the full message and ministry of Christ Jesus. And so these passages present Jesus as a living stone. As the first foundation stone. But I would ask you, of what? Of what is he the first foundation stone of? And that's where we go back to verses four, uh, four, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And so he is the first foundation stone of a new building. This is a, uh, an analogy, a comparison, helping us to understand what God's kingdom is like. And in this comparison, it is like a new temple, a new building. The old temple was built of literal granite, marble, gold, all kinds of precious things that we could pull out of the earth. But that temple was intentionally destroyed and wiped away and with it the sacrificial system. And a new temple, a new building, if you will, is being built up. And that new building is not this building. The new building is the people of the church. And in this comparison, we ourselves become like living stones being built into a temple. One built of living stones, the redeemed of Christ Jesus. In the New Testament, in the new covenant of grace, the temple or the house of God is not a physical building, but the spirit of God indwelling in the hearts of his people. 
We've talked about this a number of times over the past few weeks and how this begins individually in salvation. That when we come to Christ Jesus, his spirit indwells our heart. But Christianity, which begins through individual conversion, individual repentance and faith, does not remain individual for very long. Immediately, we come into the fellowship of the church. We come into being with other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the analogy of the body of Christ. That each of us are individually gifted by God's spirit to do and be uh, and serve in certain ways. And that we need one another in the church. In this analogy, we are being collectively built up into a great house, a spiritual place of worship. And so it is a, an analogy of the old temple as being insufficient and the new being better and greater. Theologian Wayne Grudem writes this, The beauty of this new and living temple made of people should no longer be of, uh, no longer be of expensive gold and precious jewels, but the imperishable beauty of holiness and faith in Christians' lives, qualities which much more effectively reflect the glory of God. Those who have come to salvation in Jesus are immovable in Christ, as stones upon a firm foundation, but they are alive and are growing, very unlike any normal stone. So it's an interesting analogy. It's an analogy of of strength, of firm standing that is based upon the foundation stone of Christ Jesus, an immovable stone. And yet, unlike a stone, we are living. And so we have both the characteristics of longevity and strength in Christ Jesus, but living in nonetheless. An interesting analogy. And so he moves on from that to remind us of a further standing, that in this way, in this service to Christ Jesus, that we are, as it says in the second half of verse 5, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. A holy priesthood. In the Old Testament, there was a priesthood that offered sacrifices at this physical temple or at the tabernacle that was moved or the physical uh, fixed place at the temple. And these sacrifices were insufficient, but they were symbolic. They always looked ahead to a final perfect sacrifice that would come in the form of the Messiah. And so Jesus Christ himself is the final and perfect substitution for our sins. And our uh, joy at Christmas time is, is celebrating the hope of the coming of a Messiah and then the actual coming of that Messiah and his death and resurrection that we might have salvation in his name. And so now under the new covenant of grace, past the resurrection of Christ Jesus, our lives are lived in a different way. The temple is gone. The sacrificial system which was symbolic of Christ has been fulfilled and is no longer needed. And so now our lives are lived in a different way. Our lives are lived, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, as living sacrifices. He writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So if we are, as Peter writes, a holy priesthood, and we are to be offering spiritual sacrifices, what this means is, as Paul says, 
We are to live sacrificial lives unto the Lord. We as Christians are putting off old things. We are dying to ourself. We are putting to death selfishness and self-centeredness in the way that we would live our lives and by faith taking up the new ways of Christ and living in a different way, a way that does not speak about others in slander, a way that does not envy others, a way that is not malicious, a way that is like unto Jesus Christ. And this involves a sacrificial life, but a life that is not lived for ourselves, a life that is lived unto Christ Jesus. We are living our life as a spiritual sacrifice unto the Lord. We are living each and every day as unto the Lord. A life lived not for yourself, not for your own glory, not for your own enrichment, but a life lived to point others to Christ Jesus. This is a spiritual service of worship that when people look at you, they see something about your life that points them to the glory of God. This is the way that we ought to be living. And it cannot be lived without self-sacrifice. If you indulge all the things of the old man, of the old person, you will not be walking in this way. And so through Christ as our mediator and high priest, our actions are pleasing to the Lord. This is what it means that our spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so I ask you this morning, what will you do with Jesus, this great cornerstone? Will you be offended by him and reject him? Or will you believe in him this Christmas and live for his glory? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage. And we thank you for the beautiful analogies that come out of it. So many different things in this passage. Help us to grasp these things. And I pray, God, help us to live and walk in these ways. I pray that we would not be offended by you, that we would love not this world, but that we would love the things of Christ Jesus, that we would walk with you, that we would confess our sins, that we would live lives that are spiritually sacrificial, lived unto your glory. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.